Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you all. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 3 this evening, and will be focusing primarily on verses 15 to 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. And the title of my sermon this evening, church, is The Promise Keeper. The Promise Keeper. Once you find your places in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, please stand with me, church, for the public reading of God's word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, the promise keeper. This is what God's word says this evening, church, through the words of Paul, here in Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. Paul the Apostle writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace and the gift to just to gather in your name again, Father, this Sunday evening, Lord, to sing songs of worship to you, Father, to to see the brothers and sisters again for for another time today. And God, just to gather um, to hear your word proclaimed and preached. I just pray first and foremost for my brothers and sisters here. God, please fill them with your Holy Spirit to be expository listeners, Father, that they will not only hear your word preached, Father, and walk out of here, Lord, with bigger brains and their hearts unaffected. I pray that God, please help them to be hearers of your word, Father, whatever it looks like in their lives, particularly upon hearing your word. If it means they need to be rebuked, exhorted, Father, encouraged, I pray that ultimately um, they are made more into the image of your son, Jesus, by loving you, God, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, causing them to love their neighbor as themselves so that, God, they are living in accordance to the one mark of love that the world will know that we are truly your disciples, that you, Jesus, have actually came in the flesh to die on the cross, to be buried and rose again from the grave to redeem a people back to yourself. I pray that for my brothers and sisters this evening and any unbelievers here who who, who may have th- um, think they stumbled into these doors today, God. I just pray for their salvation. I pray that they will just hear your gospel, that God, your spirit will just prick their consciences, Lord, that, Father, they are in sin against you. They are in cosmic treason against you, Father. Um, and I just pray that they will just come to realize their sinfulness against you, but most importantly, Lord, the grace, the, the salvation that is possible through your son, King Jesus, who paid it all on the cross so that whoever believes in you would have everlasting life in you. So we just pray that for any unbelievers here. And God, for myself, I I am merely a vessel, um, a human vessel, Lord, limited um, and finite. Lord, I need you. I, I need you to preach your word. God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit that I will not mess up your word in any way, that you just guide my thoughts, my words, that it is your word going to your people, and, and it is your word and power, Lord, edifying your church, glorifying your name, so that, God, we were just made more into the likeness of your son, Jesus, until you return, King Jesus, make all things new. But until that day, Lord, help us to become more like you so that we will just live a life worthy of you, and we just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated, church. Before becoming a Christian, I was always deeply aware of my sinning against God. Even at a young age, I always had a, an idea of what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. But the thing is, I didn't learn that going to church. I didn't grow up going to church at all. Besides a couple Bible stories my parents taught me, my grandmother, I just knew at a young age that there is a God and he's the, and he's the creator. And, and in light of that, I am his creation. But I also knew that I was not right before this creator God. And as a result, ever since a young age, I had an intense fear of dying. Because I knew that I was not right with the creator God. I knew in my heart of hearts that if I was to die today, I am probably going to go to that place people call hell. And so that scared me as a, little, as a little kid. So what did I do? Well, what any human being tries to do to alleviate that pressure, that burden, that awareness that I'm held accountable to God by trying to, to try to live a good life, try to be a good person. But yet, no matter what I did, no matter how good of a person I tried to be, whether obeying my parents Um, being kind to my neighbors, no matter how well I performed in school. It didn't matter what I did because at the end of the day, I could not escape this, this, this gripping reality that I am under the wrath of God because I have sinned against him based on what I've said, what I've done, what I've thought. I knew that if I was to die, no matter what I tried to do on my own strength, I am going to hell because I've sinned against God. I knew that as, as a little kid. Um, and it got to such a point that even before I went to bed, I used to pray to God, like, Lord, forgive me. I have sinned against you. But I tried to do it on my own strength. And no matter how fervent I was in those prayers, how genuine I was, again, I could not get rid of the burden that I am under the wrath of God. At least until I first heard the gospel when I was in middle school. Because when I first heard the gospel, that was the first time in my life that I experienced this peace. This peace that surpasses human understanding. Because before Christ, I didn't have peace. I didn't have joy. I didn't really have life. I thought I did. But it was here in the gospel that I realized that, wow, there is hope for someone like me. There is hope. There is freedom from the wrath of God because of what this, because of, because of what this guy Jesus has done for me on the cross. I didn't understand why he died for me. But when I was told he did it because he loved me, I was overwhelmed with gratitude. I was overwhelmed with grief for my sin against the God Most High. And as a result, when I heard that gospel preached for the first time, I responded by faith, repented of my sins, placed my faith in in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior, and the rest is history. And as a result, I have this peace that surpasses all understanding. I have this hope. I have this life. I have this joy because of what Christ has done on the cross for me. Not that I was worthy of it, but because God, out of his great love for me and for all who believe in him, um, he gave me eternal life. Not because of what I did, but because of what Christ has done on that cross, which we know is true because three days later, he proved that he was the son of God by rising again from the grave. That's my testimony, at least a bit of it. But yet, even after believing that gospel, there have been times when I still struggle with my own salvation. And that leads me to a question I want that at least every Christian asks themselves some point in their life. How can I know that I'm really saved? How can I know that I'm really saved, especially that I still struggle with sin in my life? Especially when I still struggle with that sin. That sin I want no one else to know that I still struggle with my life. How can I know that I'm truly saved? And that is very important, right? Because we live as Christians, right? We know that we have been saved by faith in Jesus alone. We believe in him. We repent of our sins. We believe in him. But yet, although we're forgiven of our sins and we're able to live for Jesus, we still struggle with sin. Do we not? 
And, and because of that, it causes us as Christians to sometimes think, am I really saved? Man, like God said his son Jesus died for me, for my sins, but yet I still struggle with sin. How can I really know at the end of the day that I am not a false convert, but that I'm really one of Christ's own? And the good news is, loved ones, is that Paul here tonight gives a deeply encouraging reminder. He is here to remind any of you who may be doubting your salvation tonight with an encouraging answer. And that leads us to the main point of tonight's passage, which is this, that God's promise that you are saved by faith can never be broken. God's promise that you are saved by faith can never be broken. But why? Why can Paul even say that? Well, he's going to prove his case in three steps. The first step we're going to see is that Paul illustrates the principle here in verse 15. He illustrates the principle. Step number two, then, is that he quotes the promise. He quotes the promise in verse 16, which all leads to the third and final step that Paul interprets the passage. He interprets the passage in verses 17 to 18. That's how Paul proves his case here. And so with all that in mind, then, let's start by looking at the first step, which again is this, that Paul illustrates the principle. He illustrates the principle here in verse 15. And so look at your Bibles in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one unknows it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so we see here that Paul begins really a new section in Galatians 3.15. How can you know that? Well, you can know that through that phrase, brothers. Some translations might say brothers and sisters. It means both the same thing in the Greek. And that's significant for two reasons. The first reason is that up until this point in Paul's letter, Paul has been defending his gospel. Paul has been defending the gospel of Christ crucified, which consists of this, that God of the universe, he sent his eternally begotten son Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary to enter this world. And once he enters this world as the perfect God-man, he lives a perfect life. And he lives a perfect life so that he will die on the cross for sinners like you and me. And after he dies on the cross, he is buried. And yet three days later from the grave, he rises again from the grave because he, he says he was who he says he was, the resurrected Lord. That's a historical reality as validated in the reliable eyewitnesses of the four gospel accounts. That's the gospel of Christ crucified. But what does Paul need to defend that? Because in this letter of Galatians, if you've been following me in this series, you have a couple problem children. In other words, you have these people called Judaizers, Jewish Christians that were causing trouble in Galatians. What were they doing? Well, they were saying to these Galatian churches that they need to be Jewish to be saved. Because these Gentile, because, these, because the Christians at Galatia, they were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And these Judaizers, they were Jews. And so they're saying that, hey, you need to be Jewish just like us to be saved. And how do you do that? All the men need to be circumcised. And everyone needs to obey the feasts. In other words, you need to obey the works of the law. You're saved by good works. And once Paul catches word of this, he is really infuriated. He's upset, rightfully so, right? Because that is not true. That is wrong. Because as Paul has been making clear not only in Galatians, but as it is clear in Scripture, that no one is saved by their good works of the law. No one could go before God and make themselves right before him. Instead, a person, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are only saved by denying yourself 
repenting of your sins and placing your faith in King Jesus because he is the one who paid your sin debt in full on the cross and he is the one that can give you everlasting life. That's what Paul has been arguing throughout the letter of Galatians. Especially in chapter 3, he's, after he gives Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse to prove his case that no one is saved by works of the law. Even if you tried, it's impossible because the standard is perfection. Instead, you've got to believe in the one who is perfect, who perfectly obeyed the law, and that is by faith in King Jesus. So that is what Paul has been doing, really, throughout the letter of Galatians, especially here in chapter 3. But how does it all correlate back to this idea of brothers and sisters and that this is a new section in Paul's letter here in the chapter? Well, again, consider that phrase, brothers and sisters. What does that remind you of? That's a very affectionate um, term to refer to other people, such as when I call um, my brothers here brothers or my sisters sisters. That shows that we have a bond together because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so what Paul is doing here, he is reminding his Galatian brothers and sisters that, hey, I know that you guys have swerved away from the gospel because that's what they did. He opens up his letter, if you recall, that I am so shocked, Galatians, you are turning away from the gospel. You're turning from a gospel that saves and Jesus to that, that cannot save by trusting in yourself. And what's even interesting is that if you look earlier in chapter 3, what does Paul call them? You fools. He calls them fools twice. Why? Because they have turned from a true gospel to a false one. And Paul was so shocked that he even says, like, man, it's, it's, it's as if someone has put you under a spell. Who has bewitched you, Galatians? And so although Paul is stern, he is correcting the Galatians here for their foolishness. He is stern and, and his rebuke towards them. But yet, notice the word here, brothers and sisters. Although Paul is correcting them, he is still wanting to encourage them, like, hey, I know I'm, incur- I'm rebuking you right now because of something very foolish you did. Turning from Christ, that's, that's very dumb. It's very stupid. But yet, you are still my brothers and sisters. And the reason why Paul says that, because he has every expectation, and it is his prayer that these Galatian believers will be restored back to King Jesus. And it just really shows that Paul, although he's speaking the truth to them, he's doing it in a matter of truth and love. So that's the significance of really them calling brothers and sisters, which is a reminder for us, loved ones, that when we do correct other people, that we do have to have that same gentleness. Still got to speak the truth, but make sure it's always done in a manner of truth and love. So a good reminder um, to consider Paul's example here of how he corrects brothers and sisters. But with all that said in mind, this is a new section because when, when Paul says brothers and sisters, he then adds a new argument to this idea that you are saved by faith in Christ alone. And how Paul now is going to develop his argument here to prove that case is that he offers an illustration. He offers an illustration here to prove that a person is indeed saved by faith in Christ alone. Before this, he's been, again, offering various Old Testament references. Now he's going to offer an illustration from the culture of his day. And again, he's doing to prove so that a person is justified. That is, you're declared right before God by faith. Not by works, but by faith in Christ alone. And so look at your Bibles at the end of Galatians 3.15, where Paul um, writes about this illustration. He says that even with a man-made covenant, no one knows it or adds to it once it has been ratified. That's the illustration that he uses here. And, 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 and people, the, the Galatians would have understood this because this was a very common cultural phenomenon in Paul's day. And so, how do we understand this illustration here? Well, the key word there is the word covenant. And if you've been in church for, for a long time, or if you read your Bible 
especially in the Old Testament, you probably have heard of that word covenant. It's a very um, important word. And generally, a covenant is just an agreement between two parties. That's what a covenant generally is without getting into the nitty-gritty. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. But when you look at the context of our passage tonight, Paul has in mind something more particular. Paul has in mind a legal usage of the word covenant here, which in some translations might, might come out as testaments or wills. And the reason why that's important, because in first century Greco-Roman culture, Paul's day, there were two types of covenants people did on a day-to-day basis. You had what was called revocable wills, and you had what was called irrevocable wills. What a revocable will was is basically say like you want to get into a business partnership with someone else and you, and you guys make a contract or a covenant with one another like, hey, here's the stipulations of our contract. We, um, you you got to hold your end of the bargain. I'll hold my end of the bargain. But even when that contract is made, it is possible to add, you know, other things to it or maybe just like, you know, what, this was a bad idea. Let's just get rid of it. And they can do that. So that's kind of what a revocable was, right? Like you can revoke it, you can end it or add things to it. It's always constantly changing. But in contrast, what is an irrevocable will? And, and these type of wills were really used regarding the legal practice of when a person died, who got their belongings? Kind of like how we will die, um, like when we sign our wills, we have to, just, like, we have to sign papers like, all right, you know, my son's going to get this, to get, get the car, my daughter's going to get the house, my, my grandchildren will get the books, whatever be the case, you know? But for the ancient Romans, when they signed these irrevocable wills, it was kind of the same thing. All right, when I die, um, this is how my belongings are going to be distributed afterwards. But the nature of how that will was signed, once he signed it, you can't add anything to it. can't take anything away from it. You cannot get rid of it. Once you, um, you know, imprint your, um, your symbol or sign your, sign your name, it is done. It, 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 it is set in stone. You cannot change it. Um, and the only way to really break it is if you don't obey it. And if you were to do that, then there's going to be consequences to that. But yet, the point is, is that, yeah, revocable wills, irrevocable wills. And what Paul has in mind here are those type of covenants that can never be changed. Once you make that agreement, it, it's there. You got to deal with it whether you like it or not because it is set in stone forever. And look at, and look at the language, how he, how he describes this in verse 15. He says that once someone makes a covenant... No one knows it, that is, no one can get rid of it, or no one can add anything to it once it has been ratified. And that word ratified is significant, because in the Greek, it expresses that once a covenant is made, you can't get rid of it. You can't change it. It's there whether you like it or not. And again, just to kind of help understand the idea of what, what a covenant is, although we don't use that term today, right, in, in American culture, um, we, we still have something very similar, modern-day contracts, Right. Think, for example, some of the big expenditures that Americans have to buy today in order to survive. Some will be a house, some will be a car, and unless you're paying with money, which is ideal, but not always realistic, usually you have to take out a loan, right, to be able to, um, you know, to get the house, to get the car, and before, and as you take out that loan, usually sign the loan that, hey, I'm going to agree to pay off this house payment or this loan payment over this set amount of time, and once you sign it, then you are responsible for doing that, to the point that if you don't, there's going to be consequences, like you might lose the house, you might lose the car, or whatnot, right? But again, that's a contract between you signing it, saying, hey, I'm going to, pay, I'm going to do my part in paying the full payment in full, and you and, and the other person loaning you that money. And so, so, so you see, you got this, this two-party aspect, right? But yet the whole point is that that contract, it's set in stone, it is there, you can't change it until you finish it. And if you were to break it, then there'd there, there be some bad stuff, right? But ultimately, right, 
keeping that idea in our culture, right, regarding contracts, and even Paul's day of covenants, why does Paul even bring it up? Why is Paul bringing up this human illustration? What's the principle that Paul is getting at here with this illustration? Well, he is demonstrating that God's promises, when God makes a promise, when God makes a covenant, it can, nothing can be added to it. Nothing could take away anything from it because God has promised it. He has made these promises. In other words, God's promises can never be broken. When God makes a promise, he never breaks it. And so think about that then. If, if this principle then is true for human promises, right, when, when we come into a contract with someone else or if someone makes a promise to us or, someone, or if we make a promise to someone else, we are expected to keep that promise or for others to keep that promise to us. And when people break it, we get upset and rightfully so. But if we have that expectation for human beings, how much more so is it for God? Really what Paul is getting at is an argument from the lesser humanity to the, to the greater, God. Ultimately then, God, he makes covenants, and when he makes them, he is faithful to keep his promises. That's what Paul is getting at here. And I cannot help but just think about our culture when it comes to broken promises. What do I mean by that? And this is very general, but when our culture makes promises, it, it makes promises to people like, hey, if you just follow your heart or if you're true to yourself, your true authentic self, then you can live the life that you always dreamed of having, right? You know, whether it be, you know, regarding your sexuality, your human autonomy and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, although you have that worldview pushed in movies and music, in the school systems and social media, at the end of the day, people may f- Embrace that promise, but it leads to more brokenness at the end of the day. And as proof of that is that you just see all these celebrities. They, they have all, all these things in the world. You know, they have the money, they have the girls, they, they, they have the peace, whatever. And yet they still die of suicide, you know, overdose and stuff like that. And we look at this like, man, they had it all. What happened? Because those things that they think meant, is, is meant to give them peace and joy and pleasure in life, they were never meant to find it in them. It's not bad to find pleasure. It's not bad to want joy and happiness in life. But nothing in this world can ever satisfy those desires. And I don't care how constant the, the culture will, will, will say that it does. It's a lie. Because there's only one person that can ultimately satisfy your deepest desires, your deepest longings of your heart. And that is by having a relationship with King Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of God's promises spiritually. Because although we live in a broken world, you can, be, you can only find true joy, true peace, true satisfaction when you deny yourself, not live for the things of the world, and live for the one that you're created to live for. And that is King Jesus, to glorify him, to live for him, and to find true peace in him. And so, despite humanity's fallenness, despite humanity's faithfulness regarding these broken promises, the good news is that God, the God of the Bible, he is always faithful. He will keep his promises, especially to you, loved ones. Since he never changes, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and not only that, regarding his own nature, but think about his promises. When God makes a promise, it's in accordance to his own nature. He can't go against himself. So since God never changes, when God makes a promise, that could never change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's how we should view God's promises, and we should find great encouragement in those promises. And I pray that as we go through the text, I'll become more clear tonight. Yet, when, it, when we talk about promises, right, because there's, there's, there's bunches of promises that God makes in the Bible. What does Paul have in mind here, though? What promises does Paul have in mind here in Galatians? And this leads us to the second step of how God's promise that you are saved by faith can never be broken. So the second step, then, 
as a way of reminder, is that Paul quotes the promise. Paul directly quotes the promise here in verse 16. And so look at your Bibles in Galatians 3.16. Paul writes, now the promises were made to who? To Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And so Paul now quotes a promise. He's quoting from a promise regarding God's covenant or God's agreement that he made with Abraham. And if you look at the context very closely, and as we're going to see shortly, it's a promise known as the seed promise. The seed promise, and this is a promise that is repeated constantly throughout the Genesis account, the first book of the Bible. And if, you, and if you've been following Pastor Steve's series in, in, um, in the book of Genesis, then you realize that like this seed promise, this promise of descendants for Abraham, it's consistently repeated throughout the book of Genesis. And not only Genesis, but really from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. It's just one of those big themes that if, as you read your Bible, it's key to keep your eyes open for because it actually helps you to understand what is the whole point of the Bible? What's the whole point of the biblical story? And the key to that theme of the seed promise, we're going to see very shortly. But, but nonetheless, this is a promise that, that is repeated throughout Genesis. And this is the promise that Paul is alluding to here in Galatians 3.16. But even with that in mind, Paul is not here quoting particularly one verse in in Genesis particularly, because again, this promise is consistently repeated throughout that book. And so what what does Paul do instead? He just brings it up and has all all those verses that talk about it in mind. But to kind of make my point... I'm going to quote from Genesis 17, 19. This is very, um, regarding the word, the wording, it is very similar to what Paul is getting at here. But this is just to illustrate um, what, is, what does this promise look like? How, do, how is this promise worded in Genesis? This is what Genesis 17, 19 says. This is what God says to Abraham. He says that Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, Abraham, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And so this is a part in the Genesis account that Sarah and Abraham, they're both really old here. It is impossible for them to biologically have children anymore. It's going to take a miracle, which in fact a miracle does happen because they do have a child. And that child is named Isaac. And this is a child that God promised Abraham that it's going to be through this kid, Abraham, that I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. And not only through Isaac, but I'm going to establish my covenant with him. In other words, the same covenant, the same promise that I gave to you, Abraham, it's gonna, I'm going to pass it on to your son Isaac. And, not, and, it's, and it's not only going to stop with Isaac, but it's, it's, it's going to be a covenant for all of his offspring forever or for the whole nation of Israel. But what is that covenant, though? What is the covenant that God is, tells Abraham that Paul is alluding to here? Well, God's covenant with Abraham, it, it revolves around three promises. Consider what Genesis 12, 1 to 3 says, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll highlight these promises. God again tells Abraham, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, that is ancient Mesopotamia, go from your country, Abraham, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. There's the first promise, the land promise. He continues, and I will make you a great nation. The second promise, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There is the third promise that Abraham, he's going to be a blessing. And then he says, lastly here, 
I will bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, through your family, through your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow, that's a lot. And yet, the threefold nature of this promise is that God promises Abraham, like, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, the land of Israel. And the fact that Jews still live in the land today shows that God is still the faithful promise keeper. The second promise is that God promises to Abraham, I'm going to give you a nation, a great nation, and that would be the nation of Israel. And the fact that Jews still live in the nation of Israel today shows again that God is still the faithful promise keeper. And yet, he then says, finally, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing. And I would argue that this is probably the most important one out of the three, that Abraham is going to be a blessing. In what way? That through Abraham's family, all the families of the world will be blessed. And we'll return to the idea, what, what does he mean by that? But in light of this Abrahamic covenant, right, that God makes with Abraham, Paul is focusing on one promise here in Galatians 3.16. And it's the promise of the seed promise. Or, yeah, the seed promise. However, although Paul highlights this one promise, there is some difficulty of how Paul is exactly using this word seed. And in some English translations, it might be offspring or descendant. Bottom line, how Paul is using this word, or interpreting it at least, there is some controversy. What do I mean by that? Well, the ancient Jews, when they saw this promise, this covenant, they rightly interpreted the word offspring in a collective fashion, more than one. And and, and the reason why that's so interesting, because this Hebrew word for offspring in the Hebrew, it could refer to one in the singular, or many, plural. And so, although it could offspring refer to one, like Abraham's offspring, Isaac, that refers to one, many of the Jews rightly interpreted this, this, this offspring in a collective sense. In other words, referring to all of Abraham's offspring, the whole nation of Israel. And if you read through the Genesis account, um, as these promises appear, you're going to see God says things to Abraham, like, Abraham, your seed is going to be so numerous, like the stars in the sky. Or, Abraham, your offspring is going to be so numerous, like the sand on the sea. And the whole point of that imagery is to show that Abraham's offspring is going to be impossible to count one by one. It's going to be a multitude of people that come from Abraham's offspring that are going to be worshiping the Lord in the end. Again, we'll return to that idea a little bit later. But yet, notice how Paul is using the word offspring in your Bibles. Paul says that the true seed of Abraham is not just immediately Isaac, right? Um, or it's the, the offspring of Abraham is not just the entire nation of Israel. Look at what he says. Look at how he clarifies this promise at the end of Galatians 3.16. He says, it does not say unto offsprings, so he's denying the plural there, does not refer to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And who does he say that offspring is? Who is Christ. And so the seed promise then that Paul is arguing here is primarily one individual, Jesus the Messiah, the Lord Christ Jesus. And this wouldn't be too shocking for Paul's original readers, nor should it be to us, Because many ancient Jews did see a connection between the seed promise in Genesis as pointing to this coming Messiah, this Savior who would redeem humanity back to God, um, at least God's people back to him, and destroy sin and death once and for all. But that then begs the question, though. Why does Paul say that the seed promise is ultimately and solely referring to that of Jesus? 
Why does Paul do that? Well, there's a couple things here. And first, Paul is appealing to an idea that some theologians um, refer to as this concept of corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. And for those who don't know what corporate solidarity is, just really think about these two words with me. Corporate, that refers to many, but solidarity refers to a oneness, right? A unity. And ultimately what Paul is doing here, or sorry, or what this concept means, I should say, before I get ahead of myself, it just means that there's one, usually one individual, that is representative of the, of the collective whole. Corporate solidarity means that you have one individual that is, a rep, that is a representative of a collective whole. And just to kind of give an example of that, because the Bible does give examples of this concept of corporate solidarity, there's one famous example that we see in the Old Testament you actually will find it in the book of Isaiah. And in the ending of the book of Isaiah, in the second part, you have these four songs that Isaiah writes that are famously called the servant songs, or the four servant songs of the suffering servant. And the interesting thing about these servant songs here in Isaiah is that Isaiah will sometimes refer to these the servant as one individual, that the Lord is pleased with this one individual. This one individual is filled with the Holy Spirit, that this one individual is, is, is going to, in a sense, die for the sins of Israel, that you know he does not break, a bruise, read, all these different descriptions about this one servant, this one suffering servant. But what's also interesting to know is that in some of the other songs, this suffering servant is not referred to a single individual, but is referred to Israel as a collective whole. So how do we understand these things? And when you combine these servant songs, what many people conclude, and what the New Testament um, will, will clearly show to us, is that this suffering servant is one person but is really the true representation of what Israel is supposed to be. So that's kind of what corporate solidarity is. you got one individual, but yet they are a representation of the whole of the community. Or in this case, this one suffering servant is from Israel, but they're also the true representation of what this Israel is. And if you know a little bit about your New Testament, who is the fulfillment of this suffering servant? How do the gospel writers, how does Paul, how does the New Testament writers overall treat the suffering servant? Well, the suffering servant is, finds its fulfillment in that, and again, King Jesus. Jesus Christ is the suffering servant because he is the true Israel. He is, a, he is a physical descendant of Abraham, right? So he is an Israelite, but spiritually, he is the true Israel. And he ultimately suffers, right, by dying on the cross, not only for his people, the Israelites, but also to anyone from all the nations around the world who would place their faith in King Jesus. And this kind of leads to the second aspect of how to rightly understand the seed promise here in Galatians 3. Because when it comes to Jesus, not only is he the true single representation of what, of what Israel is, but Jesus, and I'll, and I'll clarify this term, Jesus is the typological seed of God's promise to Abraham. And what I mean by typology there, that's just biblical foreshadowing. In other words, when God makes this promise to Abraham, all those thousands of years ago that Abraham, there, I'm, I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And you're going to have this offspring that, you know, eventually Israel's going to come out of, right? And you guys are going to be a blessing to the whole world. That's the immediate promise that God gives to Abraham. And yet what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that ultimately that was not just referring to Isaac, Abraham's son. That was not just referring to Israel, Abraham's descendants. 
Ultimately, there would be one who would come from Abraham who would be the Messiah who would redeem not only Israel back to himself, back to God, but ultimately the nations of the whole world. And so where you got these shadows in the Old Testament, they ultimately find its fulfillment in the person and work of King Jesus. And that kind of leads to really the true intent of the seed promise. Because when you think about the biblical story in overall, let's start at the beginning really quick. How does the story of the Bible begin? Begins in creation, right? And when you consider creation, God's original design, he made everything good. Everything in the universe, from, from, the, from the farthest cosmos to the smallest molecule, all the birds in the heavens, the fish in the seas, even the animals on the earth, even the pinnacle of God's creation, which is what? You and I, humanity, image bearers made after God's likeness, created to do what? To live for God, to worship God, to glorify God, to enjoy the good gifts of everything in, in creation, but as an expression of worship to God. Whether it be the arts, the sciences, all these things were meant to be given as worship to God. That was God's original attempt, and it was very good. So good that there is no evil, no sin, no death in God's original creation, in God's original design. But for those who know better, like John, we don't live in that type of design anymore. And you're absolutely right, because what happens in the biblical story? Well, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They sin against God, and because at the end of the day, they wanted to be gods themselves. And as a result, when they did the one thing that God told them not to do, eat from the forbidden fruit, sin and death came into the world. It wasn't there before, but when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin came into the world, and it brought not only with it sin and death, but every day, and we experience this, loved ones, is that of brokenness. And the reason why we know this is all true, because partly, we, humanity does whatever it can to alleviate this brokenness. Sometimes people try to numb it out, like with, with drugs, alcohol, or sex. Sometimes other people, like, you know what, maybe if I get a good job and get a good education or, or marry my, my dream spouse or whatever, you know, they try to do all these things to alleviate the brokenness in their lives, but at the end of the day, they can't escape the brokenness that exists in the natural order. And not only that, but they can't expect, escape this brokenness because this same brokenness exists in all of us. We are broken. And we, although we're image bearers of God, this image is shattered because sin has shattered it. And not only did Adam and Eve shatter that image, but we are all responsible because we are all guilty of sinning against the creator God. And not only are we going to experience such brokenness apart from God, but that brokenness ultimately leads to death. Not just death physically, but death eternally in the eternal fires of hell. And yet, this is where the goodness of the gospel comes in. This is where God's promise really matters because after Adam and Eve immediately fell, after they rebelled against God and God gives them the curses, he says something very interesting. And in Genesis chapter 3, he gives a promise. And many of you know this promise, but I'll quote it anyways. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent Satan, and the woman, that is Eve, and between your offspring Satan and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And who is that? Who is this person? Who is this individual, this man that's going to come from the woman? Who is this offspring? And this offspring is so interesting, right? Because what does God say? He's going to come from the woman one day, and he is going to come to destroy sin and death, to crush the head of Satan once and for all. 
Although, the Satan, although Satan will brood this wounded victor's heel, nonetheless, at the end of the day, this wounded victor is going to be on top victorious. So who is his offspring? And again, if you look through the Genesis account, Genesis is so important to establishing these biblical themes to understand the, the, great, the great story of the Bible. You're going to see that this offspring, this seed promise, gets traced to a guy named Noah. And eventually to a guy named Noah, to one of his sons named Shem, then Shem to one of his descendants named Abraham. And what did we learn about Abraham earlier? That God blesses Abraham, saying that through your offspring will all the earth be blessed. And so, so where is this covenant passed down? Where is this promise passed down to? Well, from Abraham to his son Isaac, then to Isaac to one of his sons named Jacob, then to Jacob to one of his sons named Judah, then to Judah to one of his sons named David, which would have been one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, ultimately to the ideal Davidic ruler, the fulfillment of these promises to the person who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, who is ultimately the son of the woman, the seed of the woman, who is going to come and who has come to destroy death once and for all and to destroy and crush Satan's head once and for all. And when you look at the story of the Bible, there is none other person that fulfills the requirements than that of King Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's promises and he is who we have our hope in, loved ones. He is the reason why we have faith now, why we have life now, and why we have a hope in the future. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of the promises so that if you repent of your sins and believe in him by faith alone, that he is the Son of God, he is Lord, he is Savior, that he did die, right? But three days later, he rose again from the grave because he is the resurrected Lord. What does the Bible promise? You will be saved. That is God's promise that he makes to anyone who believes in him. And so my exhortation to anyone here or listening online who doesn't believe in Jesus by faith alone, I exhort you, you must repent of your sins. I am calling you that you must be born again today because if you don't repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, you will continue to live a life of brokenness. No matter how much money you may get in this life, Jesus says himself, a person can gain the whole world, but at the expense of his soul, is that really worth it? Is it really worth it to get this whole soul for a couple decades of your life, die and perish in hell forever? Not only is that foolish, but you were never meant to live your life in such a way because you were designed to find your joy, to find eternal life, to, to, to live for the one who made you in his image, and that is the creator God of the Bible. And So if you do repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're saved. And, 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 and when you do, you're able to now pursue and to recover God's original design for your life. Not to live wherever you want, but to live how God made you to live. To live for him, to glorify him, to enjoy him, to do all that you are called, to do everything that you do in your life for the sake of his name. That's how you find true peace. Because now you are at peace with God because Christ died in your place. That you didn't die, that you didn't need to go to hell because Christ paid your sins in full on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. And what's so interesting is that when a person does do that, there's something interesting that now God calls us by. Look at, if, you, if you look at the ending of Galatians chapter 3, verses 20 to 29, this is really the full conclusion of what the seed promise does entail. Not that it only refers to King Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises, but look at what Paul also adds at the very end of Galatians 3. He says now that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And contextually, this is referring to salvation. 
There is no, um, you know, people that are better than one another in God's kingdom. Everyone is equal as one in a salvific sense because there's only one name under heaven that can save individuals, and that is by faith in King Jesus. And not only that, however, but look at what he says at the very end. If you are Christ's then, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And for a first century Jew hearing this, this would have slapped them in the face. This would have made them extremely upset because what Paul is getting at here is that just because you might be ethnically Jewish, that's not good enough. Just because you're ethnically a Jew, physically you're a descendant of Abraham, but spiritually you're not one of his true offsprings. Because a true offspring of Abraham, according to the promise that is fulfilled in Jesus, anyone who believes in the promise that God first gave to Abraham you are a true descendant of Abraham. Abraham believed in God's promise by faith and faith alone. And who is the fulfillment of those promises? As we just saw, King Jesus, the person and work of King Jesus. So if you believe in Jesus by faith alone, as Abraham believed in that promise by faith alone, you are not only saved by King Jesus, but you are the true descendant of Abraham in a spiritual sense, right? So it's not just limited to the Jew. It's also open to all the nations. And that's what makes the gospel so beautiful because you, you don't find a message like that in Islam. You don't find a message like that in even modern-day Judaism. It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that it is exclusive only to Christ because only in the name of Christ you can be saved. But the thing that's interesting is that it's the gospel that is inclusive to cross all cultural barriers. Whether you're Asian, whether you're black, white, Latino, doesn't matter. If you believe in Jesus, you are part of his kingdom, you are part of his family because of your faith in King Jesus. It's only the gospel that, that, that crosses cultural barriers that way. It, it's a beautiful reality, and it points to the ending of the Bible story that it's not just going to be a multitude of Jews believing in King Jesus um, from all the tribes, which will be an awesome sight, but alongside the tribes, it's going to be all the tribes of the world, people from every nation, tribe and tongue, worshiping King Jesus. That's the goodness of the gospel, and that is what we learn here regarding the seed promise here in Galatians chapter 3. So the Abrahamic covenant then, it always looked ahead. It always looked toward Christ. And not just Christ, but alongside those who would be his spiritual descendants by faith alone, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. Now, with Paul illustrating that God will keep his promises, what does this all mean? Why does Paul bring all this up in the first place? And this leads to the final step of how God's promise that you are saved by faith can never be broken. And the, and the third step is this again, that Paul interprets the passage. Paul interprets the passage here in verses 17 to 18. So look at your Bibles in Galatians 3, 17, loved ones, where Paul writes this. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And so, Initially, right, Paul illustrates the, pr the principle of this text, that God keeps promises. Then he quotes the particular promise that God made with Abraham, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, in light of all that, Paul now interprets what he means by all these things. So look at what he means again at, at verse 17. Look at what he says about the law. It's the law which came 430 years afterward, that is, when God gave the promise to Abraham, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise, the promises to Abraham, void. Pretty clear, but there is some difficulty in this text. 
The difficulty here regards the timeline of the text here. In other words, there is a a discontinuity between when God made his covenant to Abraham and when Moses received the law for Israel regarding the timeline, right? What do I mean by that? Well, consider these two passages that kind of indicate the discontinuity here. First is in Genesis 15, 13. This is what God tells Abraham here in this chapter. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And so what God is prophesying to Abraham that there is going to be a time that once you have, have a multitude of people, the nation of Israel, they're going to find themselves in a foreign land, which is the land of Israel, or, sorry, not the land of Israel, in the land of Egypt, as we see in Exodus. And not only are they going to be chilling in Exodus, but they're going to be slaves there for 400 years. That's what Genesis 15, 13 tells us. No problems there, right? But there's some discontinuity when we add a passage like Exodus twelve forty, which Moses records this. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And so which is it? Was Israel in Egypt for 400 years or 430 years? And thankfully, the ancient rabbis, they also, they, they also saw this discontinuity. So how did they solve it? Well, not only did the ancient rabbis came to this conclusion, but even the ancient historian Josephus came to the same um, conclusion as well. So this is how they kind of resolved the, um, the discontinuity here. They said together that regarding Genesis 15, 13, the 400 years just regards the time when Israel spent in Egypt. Pretty simple, right? Well, when it comes to Exodus 12, 40, that, the, the 430 years, that refers to the time between when God received the covenant to Abraham and when Moses received the law for Israel. That was the traditional interpretation of how Jews and guys like Josephus took these two passages together and which we kind of see how Paul is kind of using it here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. But if you know your history, there's still difficulty in that solution, right? Because if you look at really the historical timeline from Abraham to Moses, Abraham was around like the 2000 BC, uh, Moses was around like the 1400 BC. It's not like a 430 year time gap, it's like a 600 year time gap, right? But we don't have time to get into the nitty gritty of all those historical things. The whole point of why Paul even brings this up in the first place is not regarding historical concisiveness. Rather, his whole point is that the law, the law of Moses, it came a long time after. Matter of fact, it came hundreds of years after God made his promises to Abraham. That's Paul's point here. The law came after God made his promises to Abraham. But why is that significant? Well, look at what Paul says at the end of Galatians 3.17 again. He says that the law, the law of Moses, as revealed in the first five books of the Bible, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, the law of Moses does not revoke, doesn't add anything to it, doesn't erase God's previous promise to Abraham. Because remember the Galatian problem. What were these Jewish Christians, these Judaizers saying to these Galatian churches? You need to be Jewish to be saved. You need to keep the law to be saved. And Paul's like, nonsense. You are saved by your faith in Christ alone. And how Paul ultimately proves that case is what he does here in verses 17 to 18 in Galatians 3. Because Paul is ultimately making an argument from the broader context of Torah. From the broader context of the law. Because these Judaizers were saying, like, oh yeah, you're saved by the works of the law. And Paul's like, wait, look at the Torah again. Look at what the law closely says. The Abrahamic covenant, it came first. It wasn't the law. It was God's promises to Abraham. It is that what came first. 
then the Mosaic Covenant, then God's promises of giving the law. That's what came afterwards. And so contextually then, it's the law that proves that the law of Moses, it doesn't add anything to God's promises, nor does it take anything away from it in such a way that it actually eradicates the, the Abrahamic covenant. And that's significant, right? Because for these Jewish Christians in Galatia to say that, no, you're saved by works of the law, and they were even condemning Paul for not being a true a bearer of the law, per se, Paul's saying that, you know what? I'm not the one who's actually denying the law. You're denying the law because you are using the law to deny one of God's most important promises where the law even was even where the law even came from to be a fulfillment of these promises. So he really switches this on these Jewish Christians' head, per se. In other words, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you are saved by your faith in Christ alone and not by works of the law because it's these promises that came first, not these works of the law. And to this kind of further support that reason, look at what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul writes here to prove this case that for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but, but God. One of the most encouraging words in Scripture that we can hear, right? But God, he gave it to Abraham by a promise. And one thing I, I need to comment on is that how this verse is structured, it's constructed as a conditional clause. And, and all that means is that it's an if-then statement. If this first part is true, then the second part will be true. And how Paul is using this statement here is that he's assuming it to be true for the sake of argumentation. And so what he's saying here then is that if the inheritance, that is the inheritance of salvation in Jesus as revealed in the Abrahamic covenant, if that inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer by promise, right? It's kind of, kind of in reverse order, which makes sense, but that's where the problem comes in, right? Because think about this with me closely. If the inheritance of salvation in the Messiah comes through the law, it's no longer by promise. That's what Paul says. But to run down that logic, if it is not by the promise, it's no longer by faith. Because God, because Abraham, he received the promise by faith, not by works of the law. And so if it is no longer by faith, at the end of the day, it is no longer There's no salvation at that point. There's no more salvation because, as Paul has been arguing, no one is saved by works of the law. It is impossible because, as Paul has been arguing, if you want to be saved by works of the law, hypothetically it's possible, but again, that standard is 100%. It's not 90%. It's not 99.999%. It is 100% because your Heavenly Father, the Creator God in heaven, He is absolutely perfect. So if you want to be saved by your good works, try try. <laughs> it's perfection. And we know that no one is perfect. And yet people in our culture, but I'm not bad as Stalin, right? I'm not bad as Hitler. I'm not bad as Napoleon. I'm not bad as Pope. I'm not bad as the, the creepy guy down my street, right? You're not being compared to your fellow human being who is also a sinner, just like you. You're going to be compared at the end of time based to the standard of what is right and wrong, of what is good and evil. And that, is, that standard is God, as revealed in the Bible. And what Paul makes clear and what the Bible makes clear, you're going to fall short. You are a sinner. And because you've broken the law, you're not going to receive the, the, the blessing of the law of eternal life. Only Christ did that. Instead, you're going to receive the curse. You're going to be damned to hell forevermore because of your rebellion against God. And if we're honest, that's what we all deserve. But yet, look, what, look how Paul clarifies the end of Galatians 3.18. He says, but God, again, some encouraging words, but God gave this inheritance to Abraham by what? Not by the law, but by a promise. 
And what's interesting is that even the ancient Jews, even a lot of these, these spiritual realities, they even still would say that, no, Abraham, he, he, was, he perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly obeyed the law because he was circumcised, right? In Genesis chapter 17. But again, let's, let's employ Paul's strategy of considering just the context of, of, of the law. When was, when, when was Abraham declared right before God? After he was circumcised or before? It was before, in Genesis 15. And why was he declared right before God? Not because he was circumcised. That came a lot later, right? No, because he believed in God's promises. Yes, circumcision was important because it authenticates that, that Abraham's faith was real. But what made him right before God was not his good works, not his faithfulness, but is, but is, is believed in the promises of the one who is faithful. And that is God. That is what Paul is ultimately getting at here. Um, and, and so at the end of the day then, Paul's point a person is saved by faith in God's promises of Jesus the Messiah because these promises came before the law. So loved ones, in light of all these different things, how do we apply this to our lives? What relevance does a passage like this have in your lives as Christians? And there's a couple that I think matter tonight. First, you must remember God's promises. You must remember and never forget God's promises and then believe and trust in them. Because because I don't know about you, but we, we have the bad habit of forgetting about God's promises, do we not? As, as the Puritan writer Thomas Manton, and I love just thinking about this quote, he writes that one great defect the people of God are troubled with is a bad memory. And what he meant by that is that God's people, we, we forget about his promises all the time. Whether it be the promises of salvation, or the promise that he's in control, or the promise that, you know, he, that he, he has overcome sin and death, whatever may be God's promises, we tend to forget them. And what's interesting is that when we need to remember God's promises, especially when you're in the, in, in the light of trial, or tribulation, temptation spiritually, or being persecuted for the, for the faith physically, whatever may be that trial particular in your life right now, it's during those moments you need to hang on to God's promises. But I don't know about you, but this is sometimes my habit. It's a bad habit. Those are the times when I'm most quickest to forget about God's promises. But I'm here to tell you, don't. You can't forget about them. You must remember them because it's going to be those promises that not only strengthen your faith, but what's going to help you persevere to get past those trials, to get past those tribulations. So not only to help you become more like Christ, but to remember that, you know, we don't depend upon ourselves at the end of the day. Yes, we, we may quote to one another, God's grace is sufficient for us, right? But when we say that, we're acknowledging that, you know what? I don't have it all together by myself. I am dependent upon God for all things, and I must trust in him and him alone. But yet, even when it comes to salvation, right? I know some people, well, John, sometimes I doubt my salvation. And yet, what you need to know is that what God is saying here, if you have truly repented of your sins and believed in Christ by faith alone, you are forever his, you can never lose your salvation. Now, don't turn on its head. Oh, I can live whoever I want, right? No, you're actually taking that grace for granted, right? Shows that you, you don't truly belong to Christ. But if you do truly believe in Jesus, he will keep it to the very end because it's God's promise that because of Abraham first believed in God's promises, if you believe in, in, the, in the fulfillment of these promises in Jesus, you will be saved. You will find life in him. And there's nothing you can do or nothing in this world that can make that um, stop otherwise. Just consider what Paul says in Romans 8, 38-39, encouraging passages regarding this reality. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you repent, if, so if, if you believe in Jesus, 
truly repent of sins and are struggling to live for him in Christ-like holiness, you are forever his. The good work that he began in you, loved ones, he will complete at the end when Christ returns to make all things new. And so remember God's promises in Christ, especially as regards your salvation, because not only will it cause you to trust in him, but it will cause you to persevere in him until the end of time when you're with him in, in heaven forever. But there's a second application. Paul really gave an example here on how to teach scripture, right? Because what did Paul do here? He illustrates the principle that God's promises can never be broken. He quotes that promise, and then he interprets it according to its context. That is a very helpful way to help people understand the Bible, whether it be your, your little ones at home, or if you're trying to explain the Bible to your coworkers at work, or whatever, right? Paul gave a very helpful way to how to, interpret, how to teach Scripture to those around us. First, illustrating the Bible is a very helpful method for people to understand the Bible, especially if that illustration is, is, is connected to the culture in some way, but still connects to the Bible. One perfect example is how Jesus taught, right? What was his favorite method of teaching? Parables. And the whole point of a parable was that he, he, he connected this heavenly truth, this heavenly teaching, down. To, he connected it to really an earthly idea so that his audience could actually hear it. Of course, that they heard by faith, that, 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 that's another requirement. But ultimately, Christ used a bunch of illustrations to, to help teach the Bible. That's what Paul does here, right? And I think it, it could be very helpful for you for you to do the same. But yet... That must be done according to Scripture's context. And this is really the heart of what Paul was getting at today. Because if you take Scripture out of context, not only are you just misinterpreting Scripture at that point, but it, but it can become a salvific issue. It becomes a gospel issue. So much so that when you think of the Judaizers in Galatians, they were taking Scripture out of context. And that's why Paul has to correct them with the Bible. That, hey, you guys are getting something wrong. Something is wrong is about salvation. So much so that if you continue down this path you're going to condemn yourself to hell. And something more close to home, think about some of the cults today. The reason why they believe in all that they do because they ultimately take Scripture out of context. They fail to just, you know, they cherry-pick all these Bible verses to support their individual claims. Like, oh, Christ isn't God because such and such a verse. But if you actually look at the concept of those verses, it actually says otherwise. And it's so dangerous then is that if they continue down that path without changing their ways by the grace of God through the Spirit, they will condemn themselves to hell because they are getting serious doctrines that regard salvation wrong because they are interpreting these scriptures out of context. And so not only is it a reminder for us to go and preach the gospel to them to help them understand what does the Bible actually say, but this is a helpful way for not for us to teach it, but how we ought to read it ourselves. That we, we, that we need to read scripture in context because if, if, we, if we misunderstand the context, we will misunderstand God's word. And if we misunderstand God's word, then we run the risk of really disobeying God in such a point that you might risk your salvation in, long, in the long run. And so loved ones, don't do that. Take heed what Paul once said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2. He says, preach the word. That's not just for pastors. That's for all Christians. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And as you strive to preach the word in truth and love, ultimately, never forget to remember that through them, you must remember yourself of these promises yourself. Therefore, in light of all these things, God is the faithful promise keeper. His promise that you are saved by faith can never be broken. Where humanity and where we ourselves might be faith, will be faithless, God is always faithful. He, so never forget these promises, God's promises, especially as it regards salvation. 
And, and in light of that, never forget to share these promises to others too, because part of these promises is that of salvation. And so loved ones, live a life worthy of the gospel. Whether, as you guys go about your weeks, um, into your workplaces, back into your families or your neighborhoods, ask God this week, Lord, how can I live a life worthy of the gospel to you? Lord, I'm remembering the promise that I have been saved by faith in Christ alone. Now how can I live that out in my life, exemplify Christ, so that your neighbors actually see Christ in you as a Christian? But not only that, but how can you have opportunities to build friendships with other people so they can actually share Christ with them, so that they can believe upon these promises and have the same eternal life that you have in King Jesus? Pray for that. Pray for those opportunities. That's what Paul does in his letters. I encourage you to do the same and so that you can be not, you know, Slothful, slothful as it comes to how you live a Christian walk, but being intentional in how you do so, especially when it comes to evangelizing. That's my final exhortation to you, loved ones. And if there is anyone here who doesn't believe in Jesus, embrace the gospel by faith. He is Lord and Savior, and if you deny him, he will deny you on judgment day. And if there's any questions that you have about anything I have said or any doubts that you want to struggle with, Come to me afterwards or respond to me online. Uh, my, my website's on the sovereignway.org page, and I'd love to talk about these different things with you so that, so that you, know, you will not die in your sins and go to hell, but that you embrace the reality that it's only by Christ and the promise that there's only salvation in his name, that if you believe in him by faith alone, you will be saved because God will always keep that promise for you and for all, for all people forevermore. And so with all that in mind, let's go before the Lord in prayer, and we'll get ready, loved ones, for the Lord's Supper.